tolerate cruelty, brutality. But I think it's at this point in which the religions uh, of the world, regardless of the religion, can connect with science and mm -hmm. embrace it because we know that to do unto others as you would have them do unto you is a very practical piece of advice, as simple as it is, as difficult as it is. And when people do that, we tend to get along. If we think of religion as philosophy and practice, then religion through its side of philosophy is dealing with aspects that science does not. The idea was prevalent in the early modern period that God had created two books. One was the book of nature and one was the book of scripture. Mm -hmm. And Newton thought that there were two different ways of, uh, of understanding both books. They say that for many in the United States, religion is more about community than belief. Your local church, synagogue, mosque, or temple is where you worship, sure, but it's primarily a place where you and your family can feel a sense of belonging, to socialize with those who believe as you do. But for me, religion has never been communal. It has always been very personal. So personal that to even say what I believe out loud seems to lessen it, to package and trivialize it into a few finite words. This brings to mind the electron. Yes, the electron. Now, quantum physics tells us that this little thing is simultaneously a wave and a particle, but the mere act of observing it forces the electron to become only one or the other. It's always fascinated me as a kid, and even today, to think that there is an ultimate reality that is both wave and particle, that we as humans ruin by simply perceiving that it's there at all. Perhaps this is why, at various times in my career, I've written about both science and religion. There seems to be very little the two have in common, but I think it's all in the way you perceive religion. And that is the theme of this episode of Indie Voices from Forward Reviews. Today I'm talking to authors who are able to bridge this perception gap. I'm not going to talk about the conflicts between religion and science. That's been done to death and it isn't even very interesting. This show is about how they can live together. Humans evolved with a quest for the spiritual. To deny it is to also deny evolution. With that, let me quote a passage from a book written by my first guest, which might explain what I mean. Didn't religion itself rise through evolution? No complex brain, no gods, no science, no arts. Pigs don't pray, cats don't cipher, and dogs don't compose verse. Not even dog roll. Of all evolutionary consequences, isn't the greatest our attempt, however flawed, to understand the origin of life? This quote comes from a character named Silas Fortunato, who believes in science, yet continues to have mysterious experiences despite himself. Beyond that, though, I'll let the author himself tell us what he means. The book is called Celestial Mechanics, published by Three Rooms Press, and is written by William Least Heatmoon. You might recognize the name if you follow travel writing. His travel memoir, Blue Highways, was a bestseller. Now, in his first work of fiction, he's writing about one man's spiritual and scientific travels. Hello, William, and welcome to Indie Voices. Howard, good to talk with you. So in our review of your book, we call Celestial Mechanics an imaginative work about a quest for true connection. What is your main character trying to connect with? Silas Fortunato wants to link his time on our planet with something far greater than himself, something that could be eternal. However, and that's a big however, he wants that something to be empirically founded, mm -hmm. something... Uh, free of assumption, free uh, of magical thinking. He calls himself, jestingly I should say, he calls himself a cosmetarian, a term that he makes up. If you ask a lot of people about whether they're religious, uh, they might say, I'm not religious in the traditional sense, but I consider myself spiritual. But that can mean many things. Is your character, Silas, spiritual, or is he trying to find a way to be spiritual? I struggle with that word spiritual because it has so many different meanings, difficult meanings, in right. fact, and largely because it can be approached empirically. Spiritus, the Latin, uh, means breath, but when we talk about it today, we're not talking about breath or breathing, generally. In fact, so many times when we use the word spirit or spirits, we're, uh, we're talking about ghosts. Right. So we're not talking about things empirical. An urge toward the spiritual is a function of the chemical and electrical activity of our brains, the interlinked firing of neurons right. in our brains. As difficult as astrophysics and quantum mechanics are to comprehend, I think understanding the human brain is even more difficult, certainly for me. After all, it may be uh, <laughs> the most complex biological structure in the universe. 
When you break it down to its smallest components like that, you can define love as a chemical reaction. You can define any spiritual experience as a chemical reaction. Is your character or are you looking for a way to turn that into something more than just the sum of its parts? Well, I'm beyond my depth here, and I should (laughs) say, Howard, that I'm neither a scientist nor uh, a man of the cloth. So I'm just a storyteller trying to tell a good story that gets to some of these issues that uh, you've already raised here. Well, I could say this. I think our understanding the human brain really has to do with the chemistry of things. So that means, I suppose, science. Mm -hmm. If there is a spiritual side to that, then I wouldn't be the one to address that because that's not the way that that I approach things. Well, did you uh, use your main character, Silas, to uh, address that? Oh, I think so, yeah. He's the man that's trying to find a way between what he knows and what he would like to know. And some of what he would like to know has no, no way of being proved empirically. But I would add, most of it does uh, for Silas Fortunato. Right. If, if it cannot be proved uh, empirically, then he probably is going to at least put it to one side, maybe even ignore it entirely. But then uh, how does he explain these mysterious uh, experiences that he's having that could be called spiritual? Well, right. he, do- he doesn't explain right. them, and, and they're not explained in the book unless the reader uh, reads uh, with close attention to when he has these experiences, what the conditions are that bring them about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are about a half a dozen of those that appear in the story of Celestial Mechanics. And if the reader notes that there's a, there's a consistent approach before each of these experiences uh, begins. And if the reader notes that, then you have an idea of what's going on with with his head. And this leads to a character in the book named Kismet, Mm -hmm. who may be a witch, she may be something else. Right, right. Uh, We had an email exchange shortly after your book came out, and you told me, the separation between rational thinking and what we often term spirituality is one humanity must continually address. Why do we need to address it at all? Why can't things either be or not be? Why do we need to interpret anything? Well, for me, since I'm not a man who uses the word spiritual and I'm uneasy about the word spiritual, I don't need to interpret it. It won't Mm -hmm. change anything for me. But somebody who does believe in spirituality of one sort or another, who does use that term, then it's those people, I think, who need to interpret it. And I would certainly be interested in hearing their interpretations but for me, that's not the way that, that my character or my own thinking proceeds. One fascinating thing is uh, you quote Carl Sagan a few times in your book, and he's a, a hero to many who have a, a scientific bent. But he has a, a few interesting things to say about religion. He uh, basically says that someday science will emerge as a kind of religion. Do you see that as happening? Well, we lost uh, Carl Sagan in 1996, I believe it was, uh, and he certainly was a fellow of that I, uh, whom I admired. Uh, and I think that maybe he may think along those lines, that is, science becoming more of a religion. I'm not sure, though. I think he struggled with that word religion, too. Right. For me, no, science is not a religion any more than it's uh, economics or, or a mountain or a can of tuna. Right. I should add that the exact quote is, uh, a religion old or new that stressed this, the magnificence of the universe as revealed by modern science might be able to draw forth reserves of reverence and awe hardly tapped by the conventional faiths. Sooner or later, such a religion will emerge. So what he's saying basically is that sooner or later, we'll all realize that the real universe is much more interesting and fascinating and awe-inspiring than anything that's in the Bible. As you uh, interpret that line, yes, that that would be my thought too. I mean, we've tried to uh, create a religion that that <laughs> could survive all that, all that the human beings can do to it, uh, over the globe. We've been working at that for three or 4,000 years, and you can see that we, we're doing the same thing now that we, we probably were doing in the beginning, and that's pulling out our scimitars and cutting people's heads off, uh, putting people in cages and throwing gasoline on them and lighting that, turning our backs on people who need our help. So whether it's going to happen again within the lifetime of anybody listening to your broadcast, I, I don't know. I'm dubious. Mm-hmm. Why did you choose then to, to tell the story in a piece of fiction when you're best known for your nonfiction? Well, I think that the ideas in Celestial Mechanics come forth best uh, through a story. And in fact, that's how the, the, the whole novel began. I was thinking about the characters in the story, and I was thinking especially about a man, in this case, Silas Fortunato, the protagonist. He makes a mistake. It, it happens on the first page of the novel. He makes a mistake, and then over the succeeding weeks, 
uh, he continues to make that mistake, not the same mistake, but he continues to elaborate it in a way. And he gets in deeper and deeper through these mistakes, even though he's trying to think through these things rationally, uh, empirically, if you will. Mm -hmm. I thought it was important to follow a person doing this. And what happens is that finally uh, Silas Fortunato gets him down to the point where he's, got a, he's desperate and he has to find a way to, to escape, to defeat nihilism so that he can embrace the potentials of being alive on planet Earth. That's a lot of responsibility for one character to take on. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, that's, that's a good point. But I think we all do that. No, no, I won't say it that way. I think we're all called to do that. We're here, okay, what's the point of being here? As I, as I see things, we're here just because we can be here. Right. We had nothing to do with this. Uh, and we're talking about almost 14 billion years of getting us to this point. Well, I think if something's so big that it's going to spend 14 billion years to get uh, you and to get me on this planet, we have a responsibility then to do something with that all that effort that's come across from so many trillions of light years away from us. Is this what you mean by well, your lead character follows a philosophy he calls otherosophy? Can you describe what that is? The word here that might be carried best over, over our interview would be otherness. Uh, mm -hmm. And I illustrate that by if your listeners could hold up a right hand or a left hand, one of their hands, hold it up and, and look at it. Right there in front of our one's eyes is this complex assemblage of billions of different, differing uh, particles, elements, call them what you will, that are cooperating. They're working together to make that hand what it is. So we have hydrogen cooperating with oxygen. We have carbon and calcium working together, bones with tendons, skin with muscle. And that hand, it's a verifiable reality. It's evidence of othernesses working together to make something something new, something that will exist for the life, lifetime of the person. Mm -hmm. But the whole concept of it has been around for at least 100,000, well, more than that, several hundred thousand years, uh, if we look at, at the ancestry of Homo sapiens. Mm -hmm. that The hand exists because somebody long before us needed that. So once again, we're talking here about something that can be verified in this case uh, we can prove that with chemistry. We can prove it with evolution. They carry proof of, of why that hand exists and that it does exist. Let me quote another uh, part of your book back to you because it's one of those books where you read a passage and you just want to read it again because it's so beautifully written. Here's what I call a miracle. Celeste eats a peach and her body knows what to do with it, knows how to transform it into Celeste. It can transmute peachness into language, prayers, love. Now, this to me, it sounds like science needing a little bit of spirituality because language, prayers, and love is, uh, seems more abstract. Or are you describing science only? I'm probably not describing only science here. Uh, but it's another illustration, if you will, of otherness because otherness carries with it this implied moral ethic, which is that for something to exist, it's got to cooperate with other things around it. So minimally, uh, what we're talking about here is tolerance and, and maximally, if I can use that adverb, respect. And that's what Silas is, is working on to find tolerance uh, and find ways of respect. Tolerance is a really tricky thing, as, as he says. That is, are we to tolerate intolerance? Are we to tolerate cruelty, brutality? But I think it's at this point in which the religions uh, of the world, regardless of the religion, can connect with science, mm -hmm. embrace it, because we know that to do unto others as you would have them do unto you is a very practical piece of advice, as simple as it is, as difficult as it is. And when people do that, we tend to get along. I think of, the, I think of Rodney King, the, the black man who was, was beaten by the police in L.A. back in the, was that in the 90s, I think? Mm -hmm. And his famous phrase, he uttered, why, why can't we get along? Right. Uh, it's a fundamental moral question. And I would point out here that dozens of the world's religions express that idea that we in, in, in the Western world, at least in the Christian Western world, express as the golden rule. It's, it's there everywhere. And I think behind that is this concept of otherness. Right. So in that way, science and religion are compatible. Depending on, on how you define religion and what you do with religion. Right. Silas Fortunato in the novel says that so much of what you and I are talking about now and what, what they talk about in the novel has to do with the definition of, of God. He, he says G-O-D could be an acronym for uh, Grand Original Dispositions. Mm -hmm. If one accepts that, at least as a working definition of God, that means, I think, uh, by implication, that everything that exists is the Godhead. But it's more than that. It's also the principles to which all those things operate. And if you accept 
that, that, okay, everything that exists and the operation of those things, then I see no reason why that definition of, of God cannot embrace uh, at least accord itself to a degree, in other words, science, and right. vice versa. Science-oriented people and religious-oriented people might need to go through some mental gymnastics to arrive at that conclusion. Well, I don't think it would be gymnastics. Uh, I mean, I arrived at that conclusion. I was raised a Presbyterian, and I, I didn't really begin thinking in these terms until well into my life, although the questions were there. I found the progress from the simple things that I was taught in the Presbyterian Church and Sunday school, I, I found them an easy segue to, well, maybe easy stuff too much. Mm -hmm. I found them a, an acceptable segue to, to get to the thoughts that I'm trying to express here today. It, there is a logic to it. And I must say the outcome is that in my mind, in my heart, if you will, that uh, my thinking about my being on this planet is much more harmonious and much more comfortable than it perhaps was at one time. Right. And we know that, uh, and you've mentioned this uh, in our conversations, that you see religion very much having to do with community. I, I certainly agree with that. But I think the great community is larger than what people sometimes hear in some of the from some of the pulpits, the communities with all with everything that exists, and it helps uh, in thinking about that to know a little bit about uh, the cosmos, and that's one of the reasons that the book uh, Celestial Mechanics is called Celestial Mechanics. Uh, right. we, a, a person needs to have a, a, a simple understanding, at least, of gravitational mechanics, which is another term for cosmic mechanics. Mm -hmm. What I'm talking about now is we need to have a basic notion of why the moon doesn't fall into planet Earth. Why New York doesn't get wiped out by, by this moon crashing down on us. That's gravitational or celestial mechanics. A reader, well, not a reader, anyone really, I think, to, to follow along what we're doing here needs to be able to look up into a clear night sky and, and, and see all of those lights up there and try to understand four basic things, and that is distance, age, speed, and size. Those four things, once you, you think about those and understand a little bit about them, and to answer those four questions or to conceive of those four aspects of space, isn't that difficult. Why they're that way, that's something else. Right. But once one is thinking in terms of, of those four things, then we get into something that could get close to what we're talking about here today, and that's that uh, a spiritual notion. Because when I look up and I see that, I come away with awe. Right. And awe to me, if there's ever a spiritual uh, aspect of what we're talking about, awe would be at the heart of it for me. I look up and I think, my God, how can this happen? Right. Uh, how could this be? It's, it's, it's beyond imagination, except that's the only way we have to approach it. Your book is also about defining your own religion in light of science. It's something that I, that I do, too. I mean, what is less wondrous about quantum superposition and alternate universes than any miracle in the Bible? So here's a final question for you, then. What's your verdict? Are science and religion ultimately compatible? Yes, they are for me, but we probably have to define our terms a bit. If we're going to talk about uh, Western religions, I know more about those than the ones of the East, let's say. We're going to have, have to uh, step away a bit to make this work from literalism. Right both in, in, in Judaism and Christianity, we're going to have to understand that to say that the world was created in seven days is a metaphor. And to me, that doesn't mean it's any less godlike to finding God as, as I did earlier. So if we open religious up, a religion up, don't get too demanding in taking it literally, then I see that science and religion can share some ground. And I think that certainly I believe religion comes off better that way. Right. And I think it may also, that is uh, this view of two forces coming together, I think it may help humanize and soften just a bit some of the hard edges for some people that science has. Well, I think I'm giving a false impression that this is a very serious academic book, and it's not. It's a very entertaining book. It has humor in it and great, uh, well-drawn characters, too. Again, the book is called Celestial Mechanics, published by Three Rooms Press, written by William Lee Steep Moon. And thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate your time. Every time that we communicate, Howard, whether it's by email or, or by radio, your questions push me to the point of, of really demanding the most. Uh, it's not easy, <laughs> but I wish that more interviewers could have the perception that you have about what you've read. Well, thank you. That's good to hear. A number of years ago, I was a science writer for a magazine that covered nanotechnology. It was called Small Times. Get it? Small Times? Anyway, the magazine eventually folded. Turns out nanotech wasn't big enough to support a publication. 
But I kept writing about the topic in my freelance career. It became almost an obsession for me because I saw in those who promoted our nanotech future a kind of religious fervor. It was an interesting, ongoing story, and it still is. At the same time, celebrities were in the middle of their Kabbalah phase. Everybody from Madonna to Ashton Kutcher were suddenly Jewish mystics. So I wrote an article for Salon.com about how some people saw similarities between nanotech and Kabbalah. The headline was, Nanotech Angels, Kabbalah and Nanotechnology Share Unexpected Common Ground. They are testament to the incomprehensible infinite. The result was that it made nobody happy. Scientists especially trashed me in the comments. If I had to do it all over, I'd probably write it differently. Less new agey, but I still think there's something there. And fortunately, I'm not the only one. Samuel Brainerd, an independent scholar of Asian and Western religion and philosophy, has a book coming out from Penn State University Press called Realities Few, Reconciling Worldviews in Philosophy, Religion, and Science. Sounds like he might be just as crazy as I am, taking a chance at trying to reconcile these things. So I had to talk to him. He is joining me now. Welcome to Indie Voices, Samuel. Hello, nice to be here. Well, first of all, am I thinking of this in the right way? While science and religion may be at odds over big concepts, when you break it down, it's really the same kind of quest for truth? I think it's only partially the same kind of quest. Obviously, in both cases, at least to the extent that we think of religion as philosophy and practice. And I think that's a point that I want to make sort of right off the bat, that's one of the places that I begin in the book, that I treat religions as philosophy and practice. So indeed, to the extent that religion is philosophy and practice, and science is also interested in truth, they are indeed both quests for truth. However, they differ in their focus, uh, their interests. Science has limitations. For example, it can't explain its own underlying principles. For that, we turn to philosophy. I think the best example of that is logical positivism um, in the 20th century. We could talk maybe a little bit more about that later if you want, why um, it failed, but it was an effort to show how all meaningful philosophical questions could be resolved by science, and it, it didn't work out. So science has limitations, that's one point. The second thing is, if we think of religion as philosophy and practice, then Religion, through its side of philosophy, is dealing with aspects that science does not. It's dealing with those fundamental issues that relate to the foundation for science that science actually does not itself deal with. There's also another aspect of religion, too, is that uh, in terms of being philosophy and practice, it, de- it has an experiential part. It's not just science or philosophy. It's about practice. It's a, it is the practice itself. Um, it doesn't just give you a theory of joy or the universe, for example. It is itself a practice that leads you to joy. So there's that practice side of it that's very important as well in religion that you don't find in science. You might find a few scientists who disagree with you that the practice of science itself and the quest itself might give them just as much joy as, as religious practice. Well, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with that, too. I, I started off in physics and mathematics, and I uh, was quite entranced by the wonder of the whole thing. So, indeed, there is that part of, of science. But science itself is a quest for truth, and how its findings are laid out, it's primarily mathematical these days, but it's a... Think of the difference, for example, between having a toothache and explaining a toothache. You can explain a toothache all you want, but it's not the same as having a toothache. Right. So it's not that uh, that one should replace the other. It's uh, they, they more they, they work hand yes, in hand. Yes. Do, do we need to go through some mental gymnastics in order to think that way, or are we even capable of doing that in these polarized times? I think, I think we can. I think there are four points to keep in mind with this. First, science is our best effort to date. This is what I feel anyway. Science is our best effort to date for uncovering universal truths about our universe and ourselves. Point, and that's point number one. So obviously I'm a big fan of science. I'm a science rooter. However, science has limitations, as I've already talked about. So that would be the second point. Third point, we turn to philosophy to understand what lies outside the scope of science. So that would be the third point. And then fourth, as I already mentioned, religions are philosophies in practice. So if we think of those four points, science is our best effort to date for undercovering universal truth, science has limitations, we turn to philosophy to understand what lies outside the scope of science, and religions are philosophies in practice, 
I think that with those four points, I think we're quite capable of thinking of science and religion as compatible. There are those many scientists who would say, well, those things that lie outside of science, those are just things that we haven't discovered yet. And eventually, science will discover them. Uh, that's right. And uh, that gets back to the logical positivists in the last century who attempted to reduce all philosophical questions to science and also show that uh, the only meaningful philosophical questions were those that could be tackled by science. And they failed. And uh, they failed for a variety of reasons. But they boil down to philosophical questions that have been with us for literally millennia. And they number them. One of the big ones that I've covered in the book um, has to do with the relationship of uh, universals to particulars. Another one that I bring up in the book um, that is a kind of a theme throughout the book is the relationship of the first-person view to the third-person view. So anyway, we, we have these questions that relate to the basic foundation of Here's an example, too, for example. Science seeks to, seeks to sift through the data of experience to find what is universal, and it is, uses logic to do this. But we don't know what it is that makes something a universal. Why should a photon in our area here and, and on Earth behave the same way as a photon in another galaxy? And why should there be rules that stay the same over time? I mean, some people would argue that they, there are such rules. Some people would argue that change is the underlying basis of the universe. Science doesn't really deal with those questions. The, the area between philosophy and science is a fuzzy one, and it's under mm -hmm. great dispute. And personally, I think the great, really great minds in science, they make their discoveries because they're knocking up against that philosophical door, trying to understand that really base, that underlying basis of science itself. So it is a fudge, fudgy area there. And surely stuff that is once philosophical becomes science. So it changes over time as well. Right, right. And what was once considered magic is now science too. Exactly. Um, yep. Let's, yep. let's back up a little bit. And why are you tackling this? Are these questions that you've been asking yourself for a long time? Do you ask yourself, what, what's the meaning of the universe as you uh, walk <laughs> down the street to get a cup of coffee? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's been going on. I started in college as a physics and math major, and I, I, there's still major loves of my life. But um, I, around my sophomore year in college, I hit that kind of standard sophomore slump. What is the meaning of life? What do I want to do with my life? I mean, you have to pick mm -hmm. a major, right? And I couldn't figure out anything in life that was worth the effort necessary that would require going into doing it well. So perhaps you can think of my life as a sophomore slump that never ended. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> right, I know the feeling. Um, so, so what do you mean by reality's fugue? Reality, well, the main, one of the main themes in this book is that there's a paradox, a mystery that lies at the root, at the heart of the reality that we live in, at the nature of reality. It obstructs our efforts to understand reality and gives us different views of reality that are equally valid. And these different views can be thought of relating to each other like voices in a fugue. A fugue is a piece of music where different themes are introduced um, in the beginning sequentially and are presented in counterpoint to each other. Some people have likened it to a conversation or even an argument. And one of the points I'm making in this book is that it seems to me from all the evidence that I found that reality is not monolithic. Different views of reality can be thought of as different voices in a fugue that enter in together and play together. And what reality is, is, is like the music that all these different views of reality generate together. Right, right. A religious person might look at, at reality as, as part of a, a grand plan, whereas a scientist might take a look at quantum superposition, electrons as both particles and waves. It, it means that things are not always as they seem. Um, is this how science and religion can be reconciled? that there's more going this on. This gets back, I think, to the mystery that we're talking about, sort of this philosophical mystery of ultimacy. And I do think they can be um, science and religion. I'm not so sure that it's science and religion can be reconciled in quite that way. I think it's the different views of reality, the different philosophical views that can be reconciled that way. And where science fits, in, fits into this picture gets back to the points that I was making earlier about science has limitations, and we turn to philosophy to understand what lies outside the scope of science. 
So it's these different, it's these different philosophical views that can be reconciled by... What I've tried to do is take these different philosophical questions, poke at them, and see if they can be resolved to a single major philosophical question. Now, I'm sure there are other philosophical questions, but I focused on one in this book. And that's the one that seems to me to make sense out of... Um, one of the things a book does is it looks at three different religions of the world. Um, well, I take a piece of the religion. One of them comes from Hinduism, another from Buddhism, and another from Western theism. And I take a look at how those the philosophies that support those various different religious traditions might be reconciled. So, and they can be reconciled in terms of different approaches to a common mystery of ultimacy. That makes sense to you? That yes, seem- yes. Where we get into danger, though, is, is when one uh, way of looking at the universe tries to convince another way of looking at the universe, uh, where, where we try to force our opinions on, on other people. When exactly. we're talking about, exactly. we're all looking at, at the same thing, really, but just viewing it uh, from a different philosophical point of view. Right, yes. I, no, I agree completely with that. I, the, the dangers in religions are all these onlys. Our, my path is the only path sort of thing. And I, I, can, I can understand that to some extent because if, if it is a mystery and it's hard to understand and you don't see the end point, all you have to go by is um, your particular frame of reference. But um, on the other hand, you know, each of us, you, I, other people we meet are different points of view, different frames of reference and we can learn to get along with each other, even people with different points of view, although sometimes you wonder about that with the different political, current political situation. But anyway, we can do that. We have done it before. And the fact that we can grow beyond ourselves and encompass other points of view besides our own, I think, demonstrates that religions could do the same thing if they thought of themselves also as points of view. Well, let let me quote from your book. Uh, You write, Each religion lays out a path toward wholeness, a way of embracing that piece of the philosophical puzzle that is obscured by the religion's own philosophical beginning and that is responsible for reality appearing mysterious in some way. So is this another way of saying each religion does not necessarily contain a piece of the truth, but a piece of what's missing? My main point was that, that one didn't need to go beyond one's own religion to grasp reality as more than just one's own experience of it. Religions have, religions to me, historic, the main historical re- religions, the world religions, like Buddhism, Hinduism, and, and theism, Western theism, monotheism, um, have all developed ways of sort of transcending um, the conceptions of reality that, uh, that pertain to this world around us. It doesn't mean they abandon reason. It's just that they acknowledge that there's something more going on. Now, I want to do a little caveat with this because it goes back to something that we were just talking about a moment ago. This is only as long as we don't think of it as the, uh, our particular view of reality is the only view of reality. It only works if you accept that there's something that other points of view are possibly equally valid. I'll give you an example of that in the Western traditions because a lot of people just don't know about one of these sort of aspects of Western mysticism. There are, it's frequently broken down into two phases, a cataphatic phase and an apophatic phase. Those are sort of fancy words. Cataphatic phase means that uh, you understand the metaphysics of your particular view of reality and all the properties, you, you grasp it as well as you possibly can with all its properties. For example, you want to learn all the properties of God if, if that's what you're trying to do and this kind of thing. The apophatic phase is a sort of g- denial of that. You go against it. You say, no, it is not that. It is not this property. It's not that property. In, and you do that in order to transcend that sort of conception that you have of it. Think of it a little bit like a Zen koan, where you're using, you're using a little riddle or something to go beyond that, whatever those particular words mean. And you have those kinds of things also in uh, the mystical traditions of Western religions. Right, right. Well, I'm thinking uh, particularly about Kabbalah, which I, I know just a tiny bit about, uh, and the different properties of God and the different uh, emanations, and it's almost a, a science in itself. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, how do you think your book will be received? Uh, do you feel like a, an apostate to both the religious and those who believe purely in science? No, I actually don't. I, I actually feel that I'm a supporter of both religions. I'm, I'm a rooter of both science and religions. I just am not a, a supporter of those who view their point of view as the only one. Um, but I am a rooter of religion. I am worried that a lot of the wisdom that is in religion is... Uh, is in danger of being lost because they are not, religions themselves are not um, tackling being relevant in this world today. They're, they're denying science, which I think is just crazy. I just, uh, that's, it's not necessary and it's counterproductive. I think many of the so-called religious versus science debates aren't really about that. They're more about politics and, uh, and I think you're right. philosophies. Yeah. I think that's a good one, yeah. Well, again, the, the book is called Reality's Fugue, Reconciling Worldviews in Philosophy, Religion, and Science. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about these issues in a very thoughtful way. Um, thank you for coming on Indie Voices. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much. There's a perception that if you are a man or a woman of science, that automatically means you are not a person of faith. In reality, there are many scientists who see science as either proof of or an extension of their faith. And this has been true since the very beginning of the modern scientific age. Isaac Newton, whose contributions to our understanding of the physical world are immeasurable, was also a very spiritual man. But he also tried his best to reconcile his scientific observations with his Christian beliefs. Was this just a necessary transition between the age of superstition and the age of reason? Had Newton lived a few centuries later, would he have had no problem throwing away Christianity in light of physics? The answer is a little more complicated, because Newton's religious beliefs and his scientific studies were not separate in his mind. They were all part of his attempts to discover the true nature of the universe. Looking closer at this aspect of Newton is Rob Eiliff in his book, Priest of Nature, The Religious <coughs> Worlds of Isaac Newton from Oxford University Press. Rob is professor of history at the University of Oxford and general editor of the online Newton Project. He's my next guest on Indie Voices. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us, Rob. Hi. Well, first, did I get this right? Was religious belief and scientific inquiry all one and the same to Isaac Newton? Without one, you couldn't have the other? I think that Newton, he's a very religious person. He's a Christian like uh, the vast majority of people in Europe. And he sees connections and, and uh, consonances, we might say, between his natural philosophy, which is the contemporary term for science, and his religious outlook. But I think he does see differences between them. We think of it normally as, uh, as two books. The idea was prevalent in the early modern period that God had created two books, one was the book of nature and one was the book of scripture. Mm -hmm. And Newton thought that there were two different ways of, uh, of understanding both books. Previously, I thought of Isaac Newton as first and foremost a pioneering thinker. And the fact that he was religious is often written off as a kind of interesting little anachronistic fluke. But you found that his religious commitment was deeper and more complex than previously thought? I think people knew that Newton was a, a deeply religious man. There is an Enlightenment view that he only did his religious research, his theology, when he became senile. That's a yeah. harsh way of putting his, <laughs> his life in his 60s and 70s. But that's the Enlightenment view. You know, He was this, uh, this, this glorious intellect in the peak of his career in his 20s and 30s. He published the Principia Mathematica in 1687, uh, which people understood or uh, appreciated as the greatest work in the history of science, mm -hmm. the, the origin of modern science. And then he became an MP, a parliamentarian. And then in the 1690s, he went to London and became uh, head of the Royal Mint. And this is all very peculiar to people who came after him. And mm -hmm. that they thought that he must have become mad or gone senile. And that it was at that period that he did his religious work. But we now know that he did, you know, most of his creative religious thinking when he was a very young man in his 20s and 30s. So it's it's deep. Uh, his religious commitment is deep. It, it is as if the, you know, when we look at it properly, it's as if he did his mathematics and his physics in his spare time. Right. And his, his key commitment was always to religious research. 
So this wasn't a case of, uh, well, I'm, I'm getting up there in age now. I better make things right with, the, with God. He, he was like this from the beginning. Uh, yes, definitely. So what was religion to Newton? Was it uh, spiritual or was it another set of principles uh, to be understood, sort of the way he, uh, uh, he approached his science? I, I think with Newton, we, we have some, some interesting paradoxes. One of them is that he, he's basically uh, somebody who has grave problems with the, the Church of England, with Anglican doctrine. Like he does not believe in the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. He thinks it's uh, an excrescence that's been introduced by people who became Roman Catholics in the 4th and 5th century. It's, it's an incomprehensible mystery mm-hmm. um, that, that makes God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son equal when, in fact, they're, they're not equal at all as far as Newton can see it. And because he, I mean, he, he remained a, a practicing member of the Anglican Church because he believed that the Anglican Church should be really broad in terms of its principles. But of course, he doesn't believe in, in the core doctrine of the Anglican Church. So that leaves him in a very difficult situation. Uh, I, what he does believe in, I think, is the significance of reason. And he believes that he's been, he, he's been given the power of reason. He's been given an especial intellect and understanding by God. And he has a duty to use this understanding, whether it's in mathematics or physics or theology, to find the truth and to divulge it to his contemporaries. Right. So I think where we see connections between his science and religion is is in his dislike of a number of approaches to science and religion. He doesn't like the overuse of the imagination. He is a Calvinist who thinks that the use of hypotheses and theories and science and many uh, many metaphysical principles in religion, they are fictions that are produced by the human brain. And human beings mistake these for divine products, but they are in fact uh, the products of their own little imaginations. Mm-hmm. You know, th- these things connect his science and his religion. Right. So he's very unlike a number of people who are also hostile to the Anglican Church. He doesn't like emotionalism in religion. He's a he's a rational Christian. Was that the norm uh, for the time? Were most scientists also believers? There are one or two people who are dubious in terms of their their commitment to Christianity. Uh, Galileo, perhaps, is one of them. But Newton is a deeply committed Christian, and the vast majority of his contemporaries were as well. But the difference was he saw his Christianity uh, through the prism of, of the scientific method. Well, what's the most surprising discovery you made about Isaac Newton when you were researching this book? Uh, one thing is the amount of time he spent on church history, uh, particularly the 4th and 5th century after uh, Jesus Christ and the apostles. Um, the amount of time and effort he spent on trying to decode uh, prophecy, I think, much more interesting than the Da Vinci Code stuff. You know, mm-hmm. uh, th- th- this is this is a, a cipher that he he wants to decode. Of course, being Newton, uh, we can see it as arrogance, but I see it as as a as a Christian who believes he's been given this extraordinary intellect and has a duty to use it. But he believes that he can decode it, and he believes he has the the correct method to decode the truths of prophecy. They're not exactly the same methods, I think, uh, in, in, in their exactness as in mathematics and science. But in general, I think he believes that reason, the use of reason, uh, will allow people such as himself to uncover truths that until now had been hidden from human beings. Was that uh, different than the way his contemporaries uh, viewed religion? I think there's a big danger. Many people, particularly in the, the Church of England and, of course, in the Roman Catholic Church, they, they see a grave danger in people using their reason too much. It, it, mm-hmm. It's as if, uh, you know, that the kind of things that Newton dislikes, the, the, the fictions of the brain, his enemies uh, being, you know, mainstream Protestants and Roman Catholics, they also think that people can be overcome by their own reason. They, they can become, you know, reason can become idolatrous. You can you can fall prey to the idea that your own reason uh, can guarantee you truth. I, I'd also add, uh, just fo- follow up to your previous question. What what's incredibly surprising about Newton is is that where is where his reason takes him. It takes him into some very radical, extreme anti-trinitarian views. And in fact, for Newton, all of religious history is inverted. So all the heroes of Protestant and uh, to some extent, Roman Catholic histories, they're all enemies for Newton. They're all baddies. Mm-hmm. And all the all the baddies that uh, Protestants and Roman Catholics hate, people, you know, that, that we despise to the current day, you know, Vandals, Huns, uh, Goths and Barbarians, 
yeah, these are heroes to Newton, and he supports the fact, uh, which is a, a horrible thing to, to to read, but he supports the fact that they torture uh, nuns and monks to extract truth uh, because he thinks that that has been warranted by God. Now, and there's this ex- extraordinary uh, corollary to that view, which is Newton's, I think, his personal paranoia because he's a, a deeply paranoid man, uh, manifests itself as the idea that modern Christianity is one great big conspiracy. He is a he's a he's a mega conspiracy theorist. Oh, I see. Oh, well, he he might have found a a home in in modern society too. Then. Um, uh, probably. <laughs> well, there's there's always a, a danger in comparing uh, such different time periods. But is there anything to be learned from Newton today that, that could help bridge the current gulf between science and religion? I think it's very difficult. I see on the one hand, you, you can say that for some people, their religious views act as a motivation or inspiration for, for doing science. But you tend to find that before the late 19th century. I think nowadays it's increasingly difficult to find people like Newton you know, people who believe in prophecy, who believe in something like an imminent apocalypse, uh, according to the the New Testament revelation, it's increasingly f- hard to find those people who are mainstream scientists. You, know, mm-hmm. you can find some evolutionists who are sort of liberal Anglicans. I don't think there's a necessary, my own view is that there is not a necessary tension between some views of religion and some views of science. But of course, you can become a militant atheist if you want to, and you can be uh, what we call a Christian fundamentalist if you want to, and you can see these things as deeply incompatible. I, I don't see it myself as, as necessary. Newton's physics lasted centuries until some of it was replaced by Einstein and relativity and quantum physics, where the rules changed that he couldn't have known about. What would Newton have made of modern science? Well, I, th- I think that's, an in- that's a very interesting question. I get asked a lot. I think on, on the one hand, you know, he has a what we might say a, a relatively simple view of the world as being an extension of God's existence, and the the way the world actually is is a deliberate act of creation by God. He chose uh, to create the world in a certain way, and that's a fairly standard seventeenth, eighteenth century view of the world. Right, he wound the clock and, and set it going. Uh, well, the clock metaphor is something that Newton would have had problems with oh. because if God created too perfect a clock, then it, it is as if he could have created the clock which would be a a divine piece of craftsmanship and hence a perfect clock and he could then have left it to go on in its own merry way Mm -hmm. but newton thought that god intervened in his own creation sometimes to to make sure everything was okay but i do think that newton's revolution in science is often undervalued you know we we tend to think of the of the darwinian uh, revolution as, as more extensive but it isn't actually you know many people were thinking about evolution at the time that Darwin wrote in the middle of the 19th century. But nobody was thinking the way Newton was at the end of the 17th century. And his view of universal gravitation is not just an extraordinary theory, but it overturns the way people think about science and what science is for. Newton is quite happy to say that we can't explain what universal gravitation is. We can't explain what the physical underpinnings of universal gravitation are. And I think when it comes to quantum theory, uh, where you know the the underlying physical causes of quantum entanglement, let's say non-locality, are incomprehensible. I don't think that Newton would have had a problem with that. He would have said, "This is the way God has created the world. Right. We will just wait uh, a few decades or a hundred years to find out what the causes are." Mm. That that's what he would have thought. Well, in contrast to what Einstein famously said, was God does not play dice with the universe. Um, yeah. That's right. That's right. But I don't think really Einstein and Newton are are completely at odds with each other. Right. Well, it it sounds to me like he was brilliant in in one area and almost off the deep end in in the other, uh, the ancient version of trolling uh, the Christian church. Uh, How come he didn't get into more trouble at the time? uh, Because he kept his writings private. Um, He showed them to four or five trusted uh, people. But really his work wasn't the extraordinary radicalism and originality of his work wasn't known uh, until after he died. And I think it's only become known in in its fullness in the last 20 years when his writings have become available online as part of the Newton project. Mm -hmm. So all of his writings are now available. Uh, And we we can see the development of his of his thought. We we can see just how much he did as a, as a young man, this extraordinary energy he invested in, uh, you know, looking at the fourth and fifth centuries and, and trying to decode the almost perverse mysteries and images of, of revelation. But tell me a little bit about the Newton project. Is that something that anybody can access? Yeah. 
it, it's open access. You you type Newton Project into a search engine, and it will come up. It's currently hosted at Oxford, which is where I am. Uh, you can search for words. You can browse. Um, there's about eight. There are about eight million words, and we hope to add another three million. Uh, and then by 2027, which is the uh, the hopeful end of the project, because it will be 300 years since Newton died, uh, we hope to have uh, about 11 million words online, all of them uh, freely available, accessible, searchable, and so on and so forth. And we, we do give guides uh, to people to, to go through this extraordinary array of material, but also people can make their own way through it. Well, it sounds absolutely fascinating. How do, how do you as an author tackle such a broad topic in, in a scientific way? Well, I, I've been working on these papers for a while. And one of the things that interested me was people had always known about Newton's religiosity, his, uh, his, his Christianity, but no one had really gone into them in detail. No one had taken them seriously. So it was a, it was a challenge to me to go into them and, and try and understand them. And they are technically difficult. They are in some ways as, as difficult as the as his mathematics. And, I, and, and the, the difficulty for me was, was getting across the, the kind of methods he used in his research, but also making them available and accessible to a wider audience, which is what I've tried to do in Priest of Nature. Mm -hmm. Well, there's obviously still more to be discovered about Isaac Newton. Uh, what do you hope to learn next? Uh, again, without uh, obviously trying to promote the Newton project, I, I do think that when all of his writings, I mean, even now with the millions of words that are available, when all of his writings are online, people can try and find connections. Uh, you know, th this is a, a marvelous resource for moderns. You know, we, we have in a way got uh, an unprecedented amount of material about someone who lived in his period. And we, we can find out more about him perhaps through these writings because writing was his life. We can find out more about him than for anybody before 1800. And what I would love to see are different kinds of people, different audiences with different expectations, uh, making new discoveries about the connections and uh, differences between different aspects of Newton's thought. Well, it sounds like a, a wonderful project. Again, the book is called Priest of Nature, The Religious Worlds of Isaac Newton from Oxford University Press, written by Rob Iliff. And thank you very much for joining us. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks, Howard. Bye. Bye. This has been Indie Voices, a production of Forward Reviews, a media company devoted to books from independent publishers. We are a magazine featuring reviews of the best new indie books, a website featuring news analysis, commentary, and interviews with indie publishers and authors, along with email newsletters, awards, and other services for indie publishers. To find out more, go to forwardreviews.com, and that's forward, spelled like the forward to a book, and take a look at all our great stuff. I'd like to thank our guests. William Least Heatmoon, Samuel Brainerd, and Rob Iliff. And thank you to Interlochen Public Radio for kindly providing us with a studio and their expertise. I'm Forward Review's Executive Editor Howard Lovey, and on behalf of the staff at our offices in Traverse City, Michigan, and our 150-plus book reviewers across the United States and around the world, thank you for listening to Indie Voices. Indie Voices.